Democrats and other lowlifes are once again looking to pass the Equality Act, which would make it illegal to treat people differently because of sex or sexual orientation or that make-believe gender identity crap or just the fact that some six-foot-three guy with a beard is wearing a dress and calling himself Sally. The bill would, for instance, make women's public locker rooms accessible to men who identify as women, as I decided to do after I wrote this sentence and realized how much fun I could be having in a woman's locker room instead of doing what I'm doing right now. The principle on which the Equality Act is based is that a man who thinks he's a woman is no different than a woman who thinks she's a woman. This means that the word man should not represent anything different from the word woman because the word different should not represent anything different from the word same, which is only different from the word different in being the same, which in this case means different or the same. In the same way, or in the different way, which is the same as the different way, or indeed different in the same way, the word man or woman does not signify anything different or the same from the word woman or man, which is a different word or the same word, meaning something totally different or completely the same. Now, what would passing the Equality Act mean in plain language, which would, of course, be illegal under the Equality Act? Let's say your coworker Bill is a man, which would obviously make him a woman. Let's say you, who being a woman are also a man, decide to pinch Bill's backside as he walks by in that fetching pair of slacks, which would be a skirt if Bill were a woman, which being a man, he is. Under the Equality Act, Bill would no longer be able to knock you into the middle of next Thursday like a man, though he would be able to slap you in the face like a woman, which, because he's a man, would knock you into the middle of next Thursday. Or let's say you're a female athlete running a race and you find your competition is the same six-foot-three beard guy named Sally who is just staring at you in the locker room while inviting you to perform lesbian acts on his penis. And let's say you're actually a lesbian. Under the Equality Act, you're going to lose the race by about six laps, and the lesbian sex is going to be lousy. Thus, the Equality Act will improve all our lives by ruining them completely. Because for Democrats, improving your life and ruining it are different, namely the same. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray, oh, hooray, hurrah. All right, the vast right-wing conspiracy known as Clavenon continues. You know, they really are serious about this transgender stuff. They took Mr. Potato, and he's no longer allowed to be called Mr. Potato. So since they've stripped Mr. Potato of his manhood, they're going to call him Brian Stelter. Uh, you know, you want to go on the <laughs> YouTube channel, and you will get content as classy and elegant as that. Uh, if you subscribe to the Andrew Claven YouTube channel, uh, you, you ring that little bell and someone will come over your house and deliver new content, slide down the chimney possibly, or just break through the back window, uh, leave you content. And if you leave a comment and it's sufficiently ignorant uh, and bigoted, we will read it on the show because it'll obviously fit right in. Today we have a comment from <laughs> Helena Handbasket, which <laughs> I just wanted to read because I like the name Helena Handbasket, who says, I don't know if I can handle all this sweet, sweet unity and tolerance the other side is showing us. Helena, of course, has been canceled and no longer can go on YouTube and leave comments. But the rest of you can continue to do that until you say something. 
Also, the mailbag. We will have a mailbag today. And please, if you want to be in the mailbag, it's a little stuffy, but you do get all your questions answered. Just subscribe to Daily Wire, dailywire.com, subscribe. Then you can hit the podcast button, go to the Andrew Clavin podcast. There's a little mailbag symbol there. Hit that. You can ask any question you want. You can ask about religion, your personal life, politics. All my answers are guaranteed 100% correct and will change your life on occasion for the better. So I want to begin today by telling a story that I'm almost certain I have never told on the air before because I hate telling the story. It is uh, The reason I hate telling this story is because it's a story about how I was a fool. And one of the things that uh, the compliments the show gets a lot is we are frequently told that people like to listen to the show because they hear wisdom. In fact, my friend uh, Owen Brennan from uh, Mad uh, Mad Mac, Madison, Madison, I forgot. Oh, Madison McQueen. Madison McQueen. Uh, he once said to me, your brand is wisdom. And I said to him, wow, that's a really unpopular brand. <laughs> Once you have that brand, they come and give you the hemlock. But, you know, the way you get wise over time, not not everybody gets old and wise. Some people just get old. But the way you get old and wise is you have to be a fool from time to time. That's half the process. The other pro- half of the process is you have to admit that you were a fool and then figure out why. So here's a story about how I became, I'll reframe it. Here's a story about how I became wise. I was in London. I was traveling in Europe when I was about 18 or 19 years old with a pal. And we were walking in an alley and in the theater district somewhere, as I recall. And as we were walking in an alley, we came upon something which in those days you didn't see so much, but Later on, about a decade later, it became a very popular thing, which was a game of three-card Monty. And if you don't know what three-card Monty is, it's where the guy shuffles around three cards, and one of them is an ace of spades or a queen, and you have to pick out the one that is a queen or the ace of spades. And then you bet money on it, and then he takes your money because it's never the right card because he can always palm it. But we didn't know that in those days. So there were about there was a crowd. There was about 10, 15 people there, and they're shouting, and they're playing, and some of them are losing, but some of them are winning. And I'm watching this game standing next to my buddy. And I'm watching it and I see that some people are losing, but when they lose, I know where the card is. And some people are winning and I still know where they, I'm following what this guy is doing. And I'm watching, he's taking money off people, but he's also paying out when he, when he loses. So I think, you know, all right. So it's just a question of following this card. So I start to think, and again, all these people are surrounding me. They're shouting, everybody's betting, they're call, calling out. And so I started to think, you know, I just turned to my friend. I said, I, I think I can beat this. I think I can beat this game. And so I took out some money and my friend took out a lot of money, which was, you know, for us was not that much. And we had no money in those days. But, you know, he took out something like 40 pounds, which was about 60 bucks. And we're going and we're doing this thing and they're shuffling the cards around. And I say, I've got it. And I'm about to put the money down and just something as my hand is in the air, something occurred to me that this has got to be some kind of a con. It's got to be. And I'm about to put the money down. And I went, wait, 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 don't do it. And it was too late. He dropped 40 pounds on the table. And of course, we picked the wrong card and we lost the money. And we were shocked because that that for us was, you know, it was like losing over a thousand dollars would be today. I mean, it was just it was just devastating. We were traveling on a budget. We were staying anywhere we could. We had nothing. And he just dropped 40 pounds. And it was my fault. And it was my fault. So we left the alley and we're in shock and we get around the corner and I turned to him and I said, that was a con. Let's go get our money back. 
And we were two pretty tough guys. We were both, both of us got fairly pugilistic, had bit, both been in a lot of uh, fist fights, not like o- Obama. Obama said he broke somebody's nose. No, that didn't actually happen. But we had actually been in a lot of fist fights as kids, and we were still kids. So he said, let's go back and just get that guy. We're just going to go and get that guy and take our money back. We walk around the corner, and not only is the guy gone, but all the people are gone. And that's when I realized how I got conned. That was when it struck me what had happened to me. I was watching the cards because I thought people were playing with the cards. But the whole thing was a con. It was what you call an ambient lie. We were surrounded by people creating a scene in which we were the only people who weren't involved, who weren't actors in the scene. We were the marks, right? And I realized that what had happened to me is I had been focused on the cards, which was perfectly fine, but hadn't realized that all the people, that whole scene, the whole scene was being put on. That is what has happened to me now as far as I can tell, watching the politics of the United States of America, we are watching a big grift. As you know, I often lie awake all night thinking about who's outside my house, but I can always find out because of the Ring security cams. These things are so easy to install. Ring doorbells are easy to install. Floodlight cams, an entire alarm system. They've got everything you need to make your home safe and make you feel safe when you're in your home. If you have a Ring doorbell, anytime anybody comes to the door, you can talk to them no matter where you are, whether you're in your bed or in my bed or anywhere in the world. You can look on your phone and talk to the person at your door and check out what is going on. It's important right now. You know, you're getting all these deliveries. We're all getting all these deliveries. We're all working uh, in the house. It's nice to know that you can keep track of what's going on outside your house all the time with your Ring system. And right now, you can get a special offer on the Ring Welcome Kit at ring.com slash Clavin. It comes with Ring's Video Doorbell 3 and Chime Pro. It is the perfect way to upgrade your front door and start your Ring experience. Go to ring.com slash Clavin. That's ring.com slash Clavin. Anyone comes to your door, you say to him, how do you spell Clavin? And if he knows it's K-L-A-V-A-N. If he sings that song, call the police. We are watching a tremendous con. And, you know, it was hard to tell when Trump was in the room and everybody was shouting and yelling and there was all this noise going around. There's the ambient lie. You know, there's this ambient lie. And we thought it was about Trump says this and this guy says that and Trump, you know, this is doing this. And but no, it was all a con. It was all a con. I mean, just think the, the first time this struck me, the first time this struck me was after Brett Kavanaugh was accused uh, by this, you know, woman who couldn't even prove that she had ever met Brett Kavanaugh when she accused him. And remember, they were debating whether he should be confirmed for the Supreme Court. And she said, oh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, whatever it was, he did this thing and there were no witnesses. And even the people she said were witnesses, her friends said it probably never happened. And yet every day there were stories in the newspaper about it. Every day there were stories. Another woman was coming forward with her terrible, sad story about how she was attacked and nobody believed her. And that's why she believes this woman who's accusing Brett Kavanaugh. And this female activist cornered Jeff Flake in the elevator and screamed, you know, and said things that would, would touch anybody. And here's, here's that scene, a, a, a little bit of it. You're telling all women that they don't matter, that they should just stay quiet because if they tell you what happened to them, you're going to ignore them. That's what happened to me. And that's what you're telling all women in America. And 
and you hear her voice trembling in the tears, and that's what happened to me, that, ha that ha it happened to me, and that's what you're telling all women in America. Joe Biden is plausibly accused of hurling one of his employees up against the wall and raping her with his finger, right? Not only does the news not cover it, but that same woman, woman issued this statement, which is cut 25. Suddenly, where are the tears? Where's the noise? Where, it's the ambient lie. It's the same thing. They surrounded us with this stuff. And, you know, the, the people in the alley in London who were shouting all those actors, that was the press. Those were the reporters. Those were the people creating the noise. So you are thinking, yeah, this is an issue. And I remember even here at The Daily Wire, where we're pretty savvy and we're following the news, we were debating whether Brett Kavanaugh did it, which had nothing to do with it. That's like debating where the queen is. Which card is the queen? It was a complete grift. The whole thing was a grift. The Me Too movement, grift. None of it. None of it was real. Remember Kids in Cages? <laughs> I, can't, I can't. I go back. You cannot even recall, honestly, how emotional everybody was about the kids in the cages. Remember Donald Trump, the Trump administration housed uh, illegal aliens who had come over with their families until the law said that they had to remove the children and then they put them in a facility for children. And these were kids in cages. The New York Times hired child actors to read the pitiful stories of these children. On CNN, they played, uh, you know, secret tapes, tapes that they'd gotten uh, secret of these children crying for their mommies. They played it for Kamala Harris. And here's what Kamala Harris said. This is cut 29. They're innocent and they're being traumatized. Anyone who has parented a child or been a child, my God, mm. the idea that we would be removing these babies from their parents, and it's not necessary. My God, the idea, if you were a parent, if you were a child, if you were a human being. Now, for the past four months, basically, since uh, Biden, U.S. Border Patrol has taken into custody more than 70,000 illegal immigrants a month, the most for this period in a decade. A growing number of those are children. Since November, the number of minors in federal custody has tripled to 7,000 after the Biden administration decided it would stop expelling minors and teenagers apprehended at the border without their parents. So because of Biden's policy, because Biden has taken away the policy that Trump put in place to keep this from happening, they've got 7,000 minors. They put them in a facility, a facility, and Kamala Harris was told about it, and here's what she said, cut 26. I'm happy, go lucky, they say that I'm plucky, contented, and carefree. <laughs> it's a, can you tell us the, the subtle difference in the two statements? I mean, can you see the subtle emotional thing? It's a grift. It was all a grift. They don't care about the kids. They don't care about any of it. It was all a grift, and it's all to get you to put your coin down on the Joe Biden card, and, and then they then they, then it's a, a bait and switch where suddenly you realize that you voted for Bernie Sanders. You just didn't know it. The Trump administration launched airstrikes in April 2017 against Syria in retaliation for a chemical weapons attack the Assad regime carried out against its own people. Jen Psaki, now the White House spokeswoman, tweeted, Assad is a brutal dictator, but Syria is a sovereign country. Where did he get the legal right to drop these bombs? Joe Biden said the events of this past week, this bombing, have had a devastating clarity of just how dangerous this president is. 
On Thursday, the U.S. military, this Thursday, the U.S. military carried out an airstrike against an Iranian-backed militia stronghold in Syria. Multiple facilities were struck by American F-15 fighter jets that targeted Iraqi border-based Shia militia groups suspected of having received funding and military support from Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard. Jen Psaki put out this tweet. This is cut 27. I'm telling you, it is all the ambient lie. It is all people shouting and screaming to get you ginned up to make you think that the issue is the issue they're talking about when the issue is them getting power and they don't care. They don't care. One of the best parts of the show, of course, is when I say rockauto.com. Why? Because it's so cool to say rockauto.com. But not only that, when you say that, you can get a part for your car if your car should need a part. One of the ways you can tell if your car needs a part is if it's not running. So if you get in the uh, car to drive to the carport store and talk to some guy who doesn't know anything more about car parts than you do, uh, you know, it's kind of a waste of time because the car isn't going anywhere and the whole experience is imaginary. But when you say rockauto.com, you can call up a parts store on your computer and get any part you need at a price you can afford. Plus, plus you get to say rockauto.com, which just drives the girls insane. Rockauto.com is a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to rockauto.com to shop for auto and body parts for hundreds of manufacturers. And best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low and the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Write Clavin. And you got to say it the same way or else it just breaks the spell. You got to Clavin in there. How did you hear about us, Box? So they know we sent you. And I know what you're saying. You say, how do you spell Clavin? Because now you can't even stop talking like that. It's K-L-A. K-L-A. There it is. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Cancel culture isn't real. You can just lose your livelihood, home, and social status for thinking the wrong way. It's just capitalism. <laughs> that, that is exactly what, you know, here's an interesting thing. There was a clip of George Carlin trending on Twitter. I, I don't, I, I assume people still know who George Carlin is. He was basically a, a sort of ordinary comic who got hippified in the 60s and became this kind of rebel comic, this really innovative comic. And as he got older, he started to shade over from actual comedy routines into just pure rants. He got a little bit uh, tiresome at the very end, but he was always eloquent and always really interesting and, and different than anybody else. And so suddenly this clip of George Carlin is trending and he's, he's been dead for years. It, it's trending on Twitter. Listen to this clip. This is cut one. Forget the politicians. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't, you have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the b****. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interest. Now, why do you think that was trending? <laughs> why do you think that was trending on Twitter? 
when suddenly, suddenly the big corporations and the government, after showing us during the election that they were willing to lie and suppress information and tell us only what they wanted us to hear and basically do the hysteria routine over one story if it affected Trump and sing the I don't care song over another story if it affected Biden. Why on earth would that be trending when people are suddenly really realizing what is going on in this country? And this is, that was years ago. It was decades ago. And he was saying it had been happening for 30 years. But clearly, clearly something, some corner has been turned where it is completely undisguised. It is completely out in the open. The White House is surrounded by a fence. There are soldiers all over the place. They are protecting themselves from you. And when George Carlin said they won't want people doing critical thinking, what came to mind for me was this very brief, very civil Twitter debate I got into with David French. And, you know, we all love David, but David, I I really feel, has not corrected for the mistake he made in basically rejecting Trumpism. Never mind Trump. You don't have to like Trump, but the but Trump was the voice of the people. And one, in one of his guises, Trump was the voice of the people. And David never really corrected for under, to understand that. And somehow he is just kind of, I, I don't think he is reasoning in the real world anymore, you know. And I, he keeps saying that, oh, you know, Twitter has the right to ban you. It's a private entity. Amazon has the right to ban you. Well, finally, Amazon took down a book by the conservative scholar Ryan Anderson. It was called When Harry Became Sally. And we were talking about this on Backstage, that it was a very civil book, but but basically criticizing uh, transgenderism. And, you know, transgenderism is a dishonest idea. The idea that a, a man who thinks he's a woman is the same as a woman who thinks he's a woman. That's ridiculous. But it now was part of a change in policy, a very quiet change in policy that Amazon did where they used to have a a policy against hate speech, but books were exempt because books have a chance to unfold ideas and unfurl ideas. They still have Mein Kampf up there and and they should have it up there. They should have all kinds of speech up there, but suddenly they're taking down books. Meanwhile, meanwhile, two Congress people from California, Jerry McNerney and Anna Eshoo, have been writing to about a dozen big-time media people. Jeff Bezos of Amazon, Verizon, Roku, AT&T, Apple, Tim Cook, Comcast, and all these other places, and sending them a, a basic... It's basically a threatening letter saying, why are you still carrying Fox News and Dish and Newsmax? And basically, why are you carrying these things? Uh, and, and, you know, have you done anything to stop them uh, from spreading disinformation? Two days after they sent that, I think they sent the letter on Monday, two days after that, the Energy and Commerce Committee held a hearing about, quote, disinformation and extremism in conservative media. And Representative Mike Doyle, chair of the Subcommittee on Communications and Technology, declared in opening remarks that, quote, it is the responsibility of the subcommittee to hold these institutions, meaning the press, to hold these institutions to a higher standard. It is the responsibility of Congress to stop the press from spreading conservative information, from conservative ideas. This is what the government is saying. So now you have the government intimidating or colluding with media companies who are colluding with each other to restrict American speech, right? Now, when this happened, anything like this, when Donald Trump just insulted the press under the Trump administration, lunatic Keith Olbermann said this. This is cut 30. 
Freedom of speech is the purpose of the United States of America. And every time this country's government has tried to alter that fact or has ignored it in the slightest, it has met with disaster. Now, to be fair, when Keith Olbermann heard about these letters and these hearings, he issued this tape. This is cut 25. Yeah, exactly. He's a grifter. It's a grift. So David French says we can't do anything about this because the government can't tell Amazon what books to sell because it is a private entity. So I pointed this out. Here is my argument. All right. The Declaration, the Declaration of Independence is the philosophical underpinning of the Constitution. It is not law in and of itself, but it is a statement of the beliefs of the founders of this country on and on those beliefs. The Constitution was formed and the Declaration says it is a self-evident truth that we are endowed by our creator with unalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that governments are instituted among men to secure those rights. And we know that they held freedom of speech a lot higher than Keith Olbermann did because they made protection from the government, protection of freedom of speech from the government, the First Amendment, okay? The First Amendment ensures that the government won't hamper the right to free speech, the rights to other other rights, the rights to life and liberty and worship and all this. But it doesn't mean that that's the only threat. The government is instituted among men to secure those rights given to you by God. That is the philosophy on which the Constitution is based. That is the statement of purpose that the founders gave us, right? So if it has to secure those rights from private entities that are now so powerful that they have the power of governments and the wealth of governments and are acting in collusion with other powerful entities, so essentially they're unstoppable and ungetaroundable, right? It is part of the reason we have a government to secure our rights from those private entities. I mean, that just to me is simple logic. So let me just show you, we're talking about critical thinking. Let me show you some of the answers that I got on Twitter. And these were not answers from dopes. These were answers from reasonable people who were making what they thought were uh, arguments. David himself said, no, the First Amendment protects private citizens from the government. That is true. That is true. But the government is instituted among men to secure God-given rights. That's the axiom of the country, right? So it's there to protect us from each other, too, right? And you cannot say, you cannot say that you have the right to free speech if you can only sell your book, book that has the right-wing point of view on a street corner, while the left-wing point of view can sell it on Amazon, through Google Books, through Barnes & Noble, through any other way that you can sell it. It is absolutely absurd, especially, especially when you have the government pushing these gigantic these gigantic entity, entities simply did not exist before. And now when they exist and when they're in collusion, it is monopolistic. All right. And, I, and by the way, I don't mean to sell David short. David French fought for free speech on campus. He is a, an attorney. He knows what he's talking about. He's pointing out something important, which there is a, a slippery slope of giving the government the right to tell Jeff Bezos what he has to sell on his site and having the government tell you what you can say and do. So he's absolutely right that there's a slippery slope, but that doesn't mean the government doesn't have a responsibility to get off that slippery slope and still protect us from these monopolies and from these incredibly powerful people. There's got to be a way when they can take parlor off the air by just eliminating their servers. There has got to be a way that people can not just get online, but can get online in a reasonably competitive way with Amazon and with other major sites. And this idea, you know, other things that people said, 
were like, oh, here's the capitalist uh, arguing against capitalism. Well, as you know, I am a, a capitalist, definitely, but my capitalism comes second to my values and my rights. And of course it does. Of course it does. It has to start with your God-given rights. You don't have God-given rights to, have, uh, to be a capitalist. You have capitalism in order to maintain your God-given rights. Everything that you do is to maintain, everything that government does, everything that we do with each other should be to help maintain these God-given rights. So here are some other things that people said, right? While their freedoms are being taken away from them, while their freedoms are being taken away from them by these guys who are sitting on these mountains of gold, you know, Tim Cook is sitting on these mountains of gold, says, yes, you shall have free speech. And no, not to you, my friend. I'm sorry, not to you. You know, that's what these guys are doing now. And, and these are transnational corporations. They have no inherent loyalty to this country. They have no inherent presence in this country. They can take their headquarters anywhere they want. They're being funded from all. There's an Amazon in every country in the world. These are not necessarily American companies. And so there's Americans who are suffering from them and American rights and American standards, which are different from all the standards all over the world. And they are not necessarily inherently American companies. Another thing, another argument somebody said, now do Masterpiece Cake Shop. In other words, if we can force Jeff Bezos on Amazon to carry a book that he doesn't want to carry, uh, why can't we face the cupcake shop uh, in Colorado to make a bake a cake for a gay ceremony that he doesn't believe in, a gay marriage that he is opposes religiously. Um, I assume that this person is talking about the Masterpiece Cake Shop that is a transnational ba- bakery which sells up to 90% of the cupcakes in the world. I mean, Amazon, it's very hard to, to know how what percentage of books Amazon sells because you know, their books are sold in Walmart and in drugstores and things like that. It's just hard to keep those numbers. But at least at least one estimate is that they sell 83% of the books in this country. If the person who sells 83% of the books in this country can cancel a book, that is inherently censorship, especially especially when the government is, is backing them up and arguing with them to do that. So, the, the Masterpiece Cake Shop thing is like, it, it must have sounded good to the guy when he tweeted it, but it's absurd. It's an absurd comparison, you know? I mean, if Masterpiece Cake Shop sold 90% of the cupcakes in America, I would say, yes, you have to serve gay people. I don't care. You have to have a little division that's your not religious division so they can get a cake because if they can't get a cake anywhere else, the fact is you can get in your car and you can drive 10 miles to another cake shop and get your cake. And that's, that is competition and that's fair, fair trade and that's freedom. The other one I got was this. This is like the argument against gun rights, because in other words, I'm saying just the way people who hate gun rights say, well, they wanted you to have a flintlock, but now you can have a machine gun. That's the same thing. What I'm saying is, oh, you know, they used to they protected free speech for bookstores, but not for Amazon because it's much bigger. But that's absurd. The reason you have gun rights, the reason you have gun rights is that so states can form militias to fight the federal government if the federal government illegally invades. That is why you have gun rights. It's so states can protect their state rights against the federal government. And if you don't think they can do that, take a look at Afghanistan. You know, guerrilla fighting can do a lot. You can do a lot fighting a guerrilla war. That is, it's the, obviously it's a horrible idea. It's the last thing you want to have happen. But in the extreme case, that's why you have gun rights. If the federal, if the army were still using flintlocks, then I would say, yes, you can restrict, you can restrict us to flintlocks, but the army is using high tech weapons. We can have weapons just as well. So in other words, the idea is not, it's not the guns. It was never the guns. It's the rights. It's the rights. So it's not, 
you know, government can't uh, stop people from speaking freely because government is bad. It's because no one should be able to stop you from speaking freely. It's the rights come first. But here's the big one. And this is the one that really disturbed me because it's, it's so prevalent even on the right and even especially on the right. I think uh, we're hearing this more and more. When I said, somebody answered, a couple of people answered, when I said we are endowed by our creator with rights, people said, no, that's untrue. There is no creator. There is no God. God is, is just a superstition. We were not endowed with our, by our creator with rights. See, they, that is half smart. That's half smart because the fact is we live in a system. It is a great system. It is the system that has made people freer than they have ever been any place, anywhere, any time in human history. And that system is based on a philosophy, and that philosophy is stated directly in the Declaration of Independence. I read it as I started talking about this. It is stated directly in the Declaration of Independence. You can say you don't believe in Christianity. You can say you don't believe in Judaism. You can say you don't believe in Islam. You can say you don't believe in God, but you have to believe in the Creator of the uh, declaration, or you no longer are living in America. It is when a self-evident truth. When they say, I hold these truths to be self-evident, that's what's called an axiom. That is the unprovable fact on which the entire system is based, right? It's like saying two things that are equal to another thing are equal to each other. That is an axiom. You can't prove it, but it is true. And all the rest of mathematics and logic is based on those things. And that's why I, I was really interested at this exchange, and I will end with this, but on this subject, I was really interested in this exchange that happened as they were passing this absurd Equality Act, which I was talking about in the opening. I'll talk about a little more. And this uh, congressman got up and said that saying that a man is not a man and a woman is not a woman is essentially going against the rule of God. Here is his speech. And at the end of this, uh, this is Greg Stube from Florida. And at the end of this, Jerry Nadler, the guy who perpetrated the Russian collusion hoax, responds to him. Here it is. Whenever a nation's laws no longer reflect the standards of God, that nation is in rebellion against him and will inevitably bear the consequences. And I think we are seeing the consequences of rejecting God here in our country today. And this bill speaks directly against what is laid out in Scripture. Our government, through this bill, is going to redefine what a woman is and what a man is. It can be anyone who identifies in that gender... Mr. Stubbe, what any religious tradition ascribes as God's will is no concern of this Congress. So God, for Jerry Nadler, as we can tell by the way he behaves, is no concern for this Congress. And, you know, I, I, I can understand why you'd say that. I mean, obviously, like if God were angry at us, he'd like, I don't know, send it like a pandemic to punish us. But that's not going to happen. Anyway, these things, these people have not thought this through. And David French has not thought it through. He is thinking, he's thinking in an old way. He is thinking in an old way about old threats. The thing that the founders were trying to do was protect your freedom of speech. That's what they were trying to do. And if that threat is coming from colluding, gigantic multinational corporations who are being spurred on by the government, that's the threat we have to be protected against. That is critical thinking in a new, in a new century where we happen to be. So I know many of you love Mike Lindell, but you know, even better than Mike Lindell is Mike Lindell's My Pillow. My Pillow is what makes Mike Lindell who he is. It is a comfortable pillow. I know this because I slept on it one night and my wife stole it. She said, "Yeah, this is a good one. I really like this pillow." And it was gone. You can wash and dry these pillows. They don't go flat. 
They are made in the USA, and of course, the company is run by Mike Lindell. They were voted the best pillow, and you know these votes were actual votes. So you can get and and you can get them cheap right now. You can get a queen size premium my pillow regularly sixty nine ninety eight for only twenty nine ninety eight. That's forty dollars in saving, and kings are only five dollars more. Now is the best time to buy. Not only are you getting the lowest price ever, but they're the best gifts. Ever. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener's Square. There you'll find not only this amazing offer, but also deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream Bed Sheets, the MyPillow Mattress Topper, and MyPillow Towel Sets. Or you can call 800-651-1148 and use the promo code DAILYWIRE. Playing the race card. It's as American as white supremacist domestic terrorists, also called Republicans. <laughs> You know, the reason I call this a grift, the reason I'm talking about this as, as a grift, a con, a scam, is because we're moving into a, this new world with these massive corporations, with government that doesn't do it, Congress that doesn't do anything right or left. Neither one of them passes any laws. They don't pass laws. We're being ruled by this deep state that nobody can see. And the, the vision a lot of these people have for the future is essentially a Chinese vision, the vision of powerful people who are creative and interesting and are creating wonderful stuff and are doing wonderful things and are cleaning up the environment and are using their expertise to run things. And the rest of us are happy because we got all this stuff. We got stuff. We got a guaranteed income. Oh, it's great. We don't have to work. We don't have to have any meaning in our lives. And we've got the stuff. And that's the stuff. And this is the vision that they have. And it's what they think is coming. You know, it's not coming anyway. But all of this is to distract us from the fact that the government basically is now behind a fence and guarded by soldiers to keep the people away. That is what it's all to distract us from. This is on the right as well. This is why I'm talking about about this argument about, um, uh, you know, about Amazon and about all these all the social media is it's not that the people making these arguments are grifters themselves is that they're caught up in the grift. They're caught up in the ambient lie that this that somehow, you know, the old problems, the 18th century problems are the problems when this whole new world is coming and the people who see it coming are using it to solidify their power. They're using the new technology to solidify their power. They're using the new markets to solidify their power. They're using the new globalism to solidify their power. And anybody who's arguing about anything else is just kind of arguing with James Madison back in the day. They should be using James Madison's arguments to argue about what's happening now. And the biggest grift of all is race. The biggest grift of, you know, race was always a grift. It was a grift when white people were using it to enslave black people. It's like, why do you get to enslave? Why do you get to enslave that guy? Well, he's black. (laughs) That's why, yeah, because, uh, yeah, when your skin is dark, uh, you know, I get to enslave you. That's uh, it's in the Bible somewhere. You know, it was a grift then. It was a grift then. And it's a grift now that Democrats are using it to oppress everybody, everybody. Skeptic Magazine, I actually kind of enjoy Skeptic Magazine. They're like an atheist magazine because they're skeptical about everything, but at least they're skeptical about everything. You know, at least they're true to their, uh, they're true to their philosophy. They did a poll. How many unarmed black people were killed by police in 2019? Most people, most of the people who were not uh, conservatives, who weren't conservatives, guessed that the number was around 100 people. And many said, over a thousand people, around a thousand people. They said a thousand unarmed black people or a hundred unarmed black people in 2019 were killed by the police. Now, conservatives did better. They got closer to the truth, which is that 13 unarmed black people were uh, killed by police. But 
even conservatives, a lot of them said uh, over, you know, close to 100 people. And remember, just because a person is unarmed doesn't mean he's not trying to kill a, a cop. It doesn't mean he's not dangerous, and it doesn't mean that killing was wrong. He may, the cop may have acted in self-defense. And a lot of times, I think they call people unarmed if they're driving a car. You can drive a car at somebody. You know, the police officer may have still thought, probably still thought, his life was in danger. When people were asked the percentage of, uh, of killings by police officers that were blacks, even conservatives thought it was around 30 to 40 percent, and liberals said it was 50 to 60 percent. It's actually closer to a quarter, 25 percent, 23 to 26 percent, which is higher than the 13 percent of the population that is black. But that 13 percent commits more than half the murders, and that's really only 7 percent of the population that commits half the murders because males commit almost all murders. I mean, almost all murderers are males. So there's a lot of crime in black communities. Police are going to deal with more crime in black communities. There's nothing to say. There is nothing to say unless there's evidence that some of those killings, even if they were bad killings, even if the cop acted incompetently and killed someone in a, in a bad way that shouldn't have happened, there's nothing to say. There's nothing to say that he acted out of racism. It is a grift. It's a grift. It's a grift that you're oppressed, that black people are oppressed by the police. I can understand that their experience of the police is different because the same way uh, a Middle Eastern, a young Middle Eastern man's experience of uh, homeland security may be different. It's not homeland security's fault. It is the fault of the bad guys who are doing the bad stuff that are basically staining this guy's experience because the homeland security just on on numbers has to look at him more closely. So I understand that black people can have the feeling that they're being oppressed by the police, but that's the grift. That is the grift. That's the ambient lie. All these people screaming and talking about dozens and hundreds and thousands of, of black people being killed by the police. It's ridiculous. And so, you know, they they make this they keep this panic alive. This is this is why I'm going to tell you why this panic is out there. They keep this panic alive by going overboard when anybody does anything that may be can be played as racism. So there was this story about this guy, McNeil, who was a science reporter for The New York Times. He was uh, on a trip with uh, high school students. And somebody asked uh, about a, a, a child who was suspended for using the N-word in a video. She was quoting a song. And he said that uh, uh, it, to understand what was in the video, I asked if she had called someone else the slur or whether she was rapping or quoting a book title. And in asking the question, I used the slur itself. He was fired by The New York Times. At first, The New York Times said, said they weren't going to do it. Then all the little children at The New York Times, they're ignorant little children who are self-certain as ignorant people always are because they haven't been able to become wise because they haven't been able to look in the mirror and say they're fools yet. When they do that, they may become wise people who are right now, they're just ignorant little people. They come in and they bully Dean Bacay and they bully the management and they fired this poor guy, this science writer, for having a perfectly reasonable conversation that perfectly reasonably included this word. So that's the, that's the hysteria. That's the people surrounding you in the alley shouting, you know, and making you think that you're in this world of people using names and people yelling slurs and people hating on each other, which is simply untrue. Let me show you what's really happening. Though. Let me show you what they're distracting you from, the game, the real game they're distracting you from. Children in this country are having a hard time getting back to school. They're now kind of being bullied a little bit by parents to get them back to school. But because the Democrat Party is in Dutch is in, is in the keeping uh, of the teachers' unions. They are not sending them back to school. In California, this, this was posted online. This is a Zoom meeting of the Los Angeles-La Mesa Spring Valley School Board. 
Now, all the people on the school board, and I don't mean to attack the school board because a lot of these people behave really well in this video, but on this school board, all these people are on Zoom and you can see their faces. The vice president of the school board is invisible. She has blocked her face. You can't see her, but you can hear her voice. Her name is Charta Bell Fontenot, and she describes herself as a black feminista. I just want to play you these two cuts because they are just spectacular and I haven't heard it played anywhere else and it really is worth uh, playing. The board sat down and said, we have to make a plan to reopen the school. And the voice you hear protesting that is Sharda Bell Fontenot, black feminista, vice president of the school board. It's cut two. We have to give the teachers, we have to give the students, the parents a date. We don't have to give anybody any date. <laughs> we don't have to do anything that we don't want to do right now. That's what you don't understand. I don't know where you're getting our information of who's telling you that we have to make a decision today, but that is not how this works. We do not. I know that you're new to the school board. I'm not saying this is a slight to you, but we do not have to make a decision today. 70-80% that is the voice of entitlement, not of victimhood, but is the, vi- the voice of a country in which victimhood has been turned into entitlement. They're always talking about white privilege. Really, what we have is victim privilege. I will not make a decision to open the school. She doesn't want to go back to work. She doesn't want to go back to work. You know, why should she? And when the woman says something like 80 to 90 percent of the people polled want the schools reopened, she starts to play the race card. She starts to say, uh, you know, what language are they from? What what schools are they in? What neighborhoods are they in? Basically suggesting that maybe these are white people who want to go back to school. Maybe it's white people who want to go back to school. And when the school board president says to her, you're welcome to not vote, you're welcome to abstain from voting, she pulls the race card full force. This is cut three. You're welcome to abstain, I believe, right? There's no reason to be nasty with me, Ms. Red. And we can present it for vote. And sorry, if you wish to vote no, you are more than welcome to. Or you can. I know what I'm welcome to do, you guys. I do. And I know that what we're doing is wrong. So how are we forcing That seems like a very white supremacist ideology to force people to comply with, you know, and conform. <laughs> Just letting them know. Privilege. Check it, you guys. So I don't want to be a part of forcing anybody to do anything they don't want to do. That's what slavery is. I'm not going to be a part of it. (laughs) That's what slavery is. It's white supremacy to force people to go back to work to force people to go back to work for pay that they, you know, that they basically said that they wanted to do. It's white supremacy. It's a grift. It's a grift. White supremacy is a grift. White supremacy is not a danger. It's not the danger to black people. There's always, look, there's always crazy people around. There's always mean people and bad people around. We all know that. That has nothing to do with anything. But white supremacy as a philosophy is not a problem. Jason Riley, good columnist uh, for both City Journal and the Wall Street Journal, uh, he, he made this point that he said, you know, white supremacy is not minority's big problem. And he talks about the fact that Um, black people are not getting vaccinated. Black people are not getting vaccinated. And he says, 
some point to a general and longstanding some point to a general and longstanding lack of trust in government among many blacks often invoked as the famous, infamous Tuskegee experiment begun in the 1930s in which black men were promised but never given treatment for syphilis. But my creeping suspicion, says Jason Riley, is that something more sinister has taken place. This is why Jason Riley, who is a student of this, he's kind of a, you know, a, a student of, of race relations in the country. This is why he thinks black people aren't being vaccinated. In recent years, and at a much louder volume than before, black Americans have been encouraged by liberal elites to hate their country and distrust others based on race and ethnicity. This is the message that undergirds everything from the New York Times 1619 Project to workplace, quote, diversity, unquote, training and critical race theory. Now it's working to undermine public health. Blacks aren't going to fight the virus any differently than other groups. We're in this together. And the newfangled racial separatism that now operates under the guise of wokeness does no one any good, especially especially black Americans. You know, evidence that Riley is right about this, by the way, is that in New York, black people have died at a much higher rate of the Chinese flu than white people. But in Florida, where a Republican is governor, Ron DeSantis, and this kind of thing doesn't go on as much and this kind of rhetoric isn't as evident, whites and blacks are dying at exactly the same rate at exactly the same rate. So maybe they are. It's very possible that they are not getting this message of hating your government. The reason this is happening, the reason, remember, it's the grift. You're in the alley. They're surrounding you. They're shouting, oh, N-word this and oh, this and white supremacy this and slavery that and, uh, you know, systemic racism that. And you're going around saying, well, no, no, you're arguing about this. It's not about any of this. It is because a structure of financing that is worth billions of dollars was put in place in the 60s, the Great Society, and a, a, a flaw in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which gave trial lawyers and the, the government unconstitutional powers to stop people from associating from who they wanted to. That has been in place for all these years, right? And now, as we look around and people have become more enlightened, because it, look, it was, it was even as I was a kid, I remember, there was a lot of systemic, uh, institutionalized prejudice in this country. And it was, it was bad. It was a terrible way to treat your fellow Americans because of the color of the skin. It was a grift then. Race was a grift then. And it's a grift now. It's just, and it's the same people. It's the Democrats still using the grift. But blacks are starting to get it. They are starting to get the fact that people don't hate them anymore. They, you know, every, all the talk about Donald Trump and what a racist he was, what a terrible guy he was and all this stuff. You know, when Donald Trump would go to those big rallies, those horrible racist rallies and would say black unemployment is as low as it's ever been, the people would cheer. The people would cheer because they weren't white supremacists. They just wanted the country to work again. They wanted jobs to come back again. That hatred is gone. You know, you can see when you look at uh, cultural works like Hamilton, the message of Hamilton is that Hamilton is the Revolutionary War played by black people singing rap in rap music and jazz music. That's a message that says when you assimilate, the history of America becomes your history. And that really is the message of Hamilton, whether the guy meant it to be or not. That is what Hamilton is saying, that a horror movie, excellent uh, horror movie, Get Out was saying, oh, if we assimilate, if we assimilate, they're going to, the white people are going to steal our souls. The white liberals are going to steal our souls if we assimilate. That was the message of that horror movie, Get Out. But that shows you that is the thing that people start worrying about when they assimilate. If blacks get the message that they are welcome and beloved and part of the country and just we just want them to get on the freedom train with the rest of us, if they get that message, the Democrats are screwed, particularly. They are particularly screwed. 
Republicans have been terrible in spreading that message. But that's why this grift is going on. That's why the ambient lie. That's why the noise. That's why the shouting and everybody throwing their hands around and pointing their fingers and everybody panicking and all the racial hysteria about things that really don't matter very much because the big grift is on, which is to keep black people exactly where they are, which is dependent on the Democrat Party. You know, one of the questions I'm asked most often is, how do you continue to look so incredibly great? It's usually me talking to the mirror, but still, I get asked that question. The answer is, I work out like a crazy man, and one of my favorite ways to work out is on my Echelon bike. It's one of these bikes, of course, where you can hook it up to your device, and you can get a training class in your uh, your home. As you speak, it can be a live one or one of the ones that they have on tape. And Echelon doesn't just offer bikes. They have the whole next generation of connected fitness equipment like fitness mirrors, rowing machines, their Echelon Stride Smart Treadmill. No matter what your favorite fitness activity, Echelon gives you a fun and challenging workout from the comfort of your home. And unlike their competitors, Echelon is affordable for everyone. And one membership lets you up to five family members all work out at the same time. So go to echelonfit.com slash Clavin. That's E-C-H-E-L-O-N fit.com slash Clavin. I know you're thinking Echelon. Anybody can spell Echelon. <laughs> Do I look? How do you spell Clavin? Please. It's K-L-A. <laughs> That's not the whole thing. There's also a V-A-N at there the end. That part is true. So speaking of George Carlin, speaking of comedians, one of the things that keeps striking me about the news is that is that every almost everything that happens reminds me of an old comedy routine. And I think the reason for that is that comedy is obviously about human foibles and the ridiculous things that people believe and the stupid things that they say. And those never change. Technology creates the illusion that the world is advancing. And the world is advancing in certain ways. Our health is better. You know, we have much, much more convenience, much more travel, faster communications. But people remain just as broken and stupid as they ever were. And so comedy becomes prophecy. You know, it's like the things that people, the, the things that people used to joke about are now the things that actual politicians are doing in actual, uh, you know, are, are writing into actual law. So, yeah, you know, I'm watching this Equality Act. And this, they've passed this Equality Act before, I think, and the House just passed it, and they're sending it on to the Senate, and we don't know what the Senate is going to do. Uh, Chuck Schumer has, has so far not um, scheduled it. But the, the, the Equality Act basically says two things. It says you can't discriminate against pers- somebody for their gender identity, right? It's not just gay people. It's a gender identity. So if I say I'm a woman, you can't do anything about this. And... And that the religious exceptions that are in other laws that make it possible for you to say, look, it's my religion. I cannot do this. Those things are not to be allowed in in play. All right. And remember from our opening today, uh, the the transgenderism, the argument of transgenderism is is not that some men feel like women or some women feel like men. It's not that, uh, you know, some people have uh, a a disjunction between their bodies and their minds. We all know that. And and we should, of course, be compassionate to people and feeling toward people and not bully people and all that stuff. That's not the argument. The argument is that two things that are different are the same. It is that men who believe they're women and women who believe they're women are the same, okay? And, and which is a lie. I mean, it just makes no, no sense of, of language. So I was thinking of this fantastic Cook and Moore routine. And I don't know how many people remember Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. 
they, they were two of my favorite uh, comedians ever. And they came around, I guess, in the 60s with a, uh, a, a review, a review called Beyond the Fringe. And Beyond the Fringe was four guys, Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, Alan Bennett, and Jonathan Miller. And all of them went on to have fairly big careers. Jonathan Miller uh, was a director and uh, he was he put out all the BBC Shakespeare, that complete BBC Shakespeare, which is great, by the way, if you ever get to watch it, it's on Amazon Prime, as, as long as they don't insult Othello. Uh, but, you know, he did a lot of that. Alan Bennett was one of the guys, and he became a fairly famous playwright. He did The Madness of King George and The History Boys. Those are the ones you know in America, but in Britain he was very famous. And Dudley Moore, maybe you know, he was an Arthur. I think he was nominated for a uh, an Oscar for Arthur, and he had an American movie career. But he started out with these Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. And, and they were Monty Python. They, Beyond the Fringe was Monty Python before there was Monty Python. And it started a, a comedy, uh, you know, fad in in Britain. So they did a bit in which uh, Peter Cook, who was the tall one, Peter Cook played a producer and Dudley Moore was showed up to audition for the role of Tarzan in a movie, except Dudley Moore had one leg and he comes in hopping hopping around on one leg, and Peter Cook, the producer, is in the difficult position of explaining to him why he may not be quite right for the role of Tarzan. Here it is. You, a one-legged man, are applying for the part of Tarzan. Right again. (laughs) A role that is traditionally associated with a two-legged man. (laughs) And yet you, a unidexter, are applying for the role. Right. A role for which two legs would seem to be the minimum requirement. (laughs) Well, Mr Spigot, need I point out to you where your deficiency lies as regards landing the role? Uh, Yes, I think you ought to. Uh, Need I say, with overmuch emphasis, that it is in the leg division that you are deficient. (laughs) The leg division. The leg division, Mr Spigot. You are deficient in it to the tune of one. (laughs) Your right leg, I like. (laughs) I like your right leg. It's a lovely leg for the role. A lovely leg for the role. I've got nothing against your right leg. The trouble is, neither of you. I love that routine. It goes on and on. He says, if if somebody comes in with no legs, you would actually be preferred for for the role. Uh, I'm a big underdog fan. When I turn on a sporting event, like a football game, baseball game, and I don't have a team in the fight, I just look who's losing, and that's the person I vote for. I love to see an underdog come from behind. And if you love underdog business stories, you want to try true underdog podcast. Raised in a trailer park with no clear path to success and kicked out of high school multiple times, faced with becoming a father in his teens, Jason Waller is the definition of a true underdog. After hearing the words no and you can't too many times, he unleashed the power within to start three successful companies with his most recent venture, Power Home Solar, skyrocketing on a path to becoming a billion-dollar 
enterprise. Join him as Waller, a four-time Entrepreneur of the Year winner, shares motivational tips and inspiring stories and business-building lessons from the ground up. He shares his life experience and that of his high-profile guests to help others better themselves. As Waller will tell you, there's no elevator to success. That climb only happens one step at a time. Let every true underdog podcast be that step that elevates you. Scared money won't make money. Learn about failure. Learn about entrepreneurship. Learn about never quitting or making excuses. It's real. It's raw. It's motivational. Check out True Underdog Podcast at trueunderdog.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. Now, it should be a, a crime. It probably should be a federal crime to talk about comedy at all, right? Because the minute you start talking about comedy, you kill the joke. But to me, I have to talk about this, so if they, if they come and carry me out, you'll know why. To me, what, the reason this is such a brilliant comedy routine and remains as relevant today as it was then is that we are embodied creatures. And the fact that everything that is or ever was or every idea only comes to us in the form of physical reality is as true now as it was true then. Tarzan has two legs. A one-legged actor cannot reasonably play Tarzan because Tarzan is embodied in a man who is athletic and leaps from vine to vine and does things that a two-legged man can do and that a one-legged man cannot do. That is, that's the joke, right? That is the joke. This is the genius of Christianity. The genius of Christianity is that it understands that no man has seen God. This is one of the epistle says, no man has seen God, but you do see your neighbor. And if you don't love your neighbor, whom you do see, how are you going to love God? You must love the embodied thing that represents God. And that's why they have communion where the bread and wine become sanctified as the body and blood. In other words, everything, everything you see, everything in life, all the good things in life are part are a pathway to God if you treat them properly. If you don't treat them properly, they become idols and then you're miserable. If you think that money is the, is the important thing, instead of the things that money represents that ultimately are representative of a good God, a good creation, then that money is going to destroy you every single time. It happens every single time. And so when you say that your body has absolutely no valence, no weight in your discussion about reality, you are talking absolute nonsense. And when the, when the guy stands up, when Stoop stands up in uh, Congress and reads the Bible, there is a religious element to this. It's not, it's not, you know, theology necessarily, but there is a religious element to understanding that your embodiment, your embodiment is part of your reality. And that's not, it's, that's not a belief. That is a truth. It is an absolute truth. And so when people start to, uh, you know, deny that truth, they are simply at war with reality itself, which is another routine that comes from the actual Monty Python who made that movie about the life of Brian. And here they are uh, with John Cleese. They're all sitting around deciding how to rebel, how they're going to make demands against the Romans. They are zealots who are going to rebel against the Romans. And one of them says, well, I want to be, I want the right to become a woman. Here's that scene. I want to have babies. You want to have Babies? It's every man's right to have babies if he wants them. But you can't have babies! Don't you oppress me. I'm not oppressing you, Stan. You haven't got a womb. Where's the fetus gonna just take? You're gonna keep it in a box? Here, I've got an idea. Suppose you agree that he can't actually have babies not having a womb, which is nobody's fault, not even the Romans. 
but that he can have the right to have babies. Good idea, Judith. We shall fight the oppressors for your right to have babies, brother. Sister, sorry. What's the point? What? What's the point of fighting for his right to have babies when he can't have babies? It is symbolic of our struggle against oppression. Symbolic of his struggle against reality. <laughs> Struggle against reality. So this routine came to mind as I was watching Rand Paul masterfully question Rachel Levine, a guy who thinks he's a woman, who is up for the appointment to the uh, Health and Human Services Division as a deputy, something other, other deputy director or something like that. And Rand Paul is questioning him about whether he is thinks that children should be able to determine their gender and have their breasts removed or their testicles removed or have their hormones blocked without the consent of their parents, right? They, without the consent of their parents. And Rand Paul is questioning him. And I have to say, there was a moment watching this when I thought I was watching Monty Python. Here's a, a clip. Do you support the government intervening to override the parent's consent to give a child puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and or amputation surgery of breasts and genitalia? For most of our history, we believe that minors don't have full rights and the parents need to be involved. So I'm alarmed that you won't say with certainty that minors should not have the ability to make the decision to take hormones that will affect them for the rest of their life. Will you make a more firm decision on whether or not minors should be involved in these decisions? Senator, uh, transgender medicine is a very complex and nuanced field. Uh, and if confirmed to the position of Assistant Secretary of Health, I would certainly be pleased to come to your office and talk with you and your staff about the standards of care and the complexity of this field. I'm sorry, you can call me a bigot till the cows come home. When they cut to that guy and his necklace and his wig and his, I mean, all I could think of it was, was I, I'm watching Monty Python. I'm watching a comedy routine. And, and you know, this is, this is a thing. The, the British have always found it absolutely hilarious for men to dress up in women's clothes. And when I lived in England, lived in England for many years, I used to watch and I would think, why, why is every comedy show got some guy dressed up in women's clothes? And the funny thing about it is it's just funny. It's funny the way a man changing a diaper is funny and a woman changing a diaper isn't. I mean, if you've ever, you know, you, you have a movie, Three Men and a Baby. The minute you hear the title, you know it's funny. Three Men and a Baby, you know that that movie is going to be pretty funny. If it were called Three Women and a Baby, it wouldn't be funny, right? That's that's the truth. Here, here is just as a segment, one of the segments that just came to mind is, I, I feel like I feel like we are absolutely being, you know, we're being scammed so badly that it's almost impossible for us to speak up because we can't believe it's happening. But here is John Cleese uh, doing a uh, dressed up as a woman being interviewed about. Uh, her relationship with a famous character, supposed to be, it's a mock documentary. Dinsdale was a perfectly normal person in every way, except, except in as much as he was convinced that he was being watched by a giant hedgehog, <laughs> he referred to as Spiny Norman. How big was Norman supposed to be? Normally, he was wont to be about 12 feet from snout to tail, but when Dinsdale was very depressed, 
Norman could be anything up to 800 yards long. When Norman was about, Dinsdale would go very quiet and his nose would swell up and his teeth would start moving about and he'd become very violent and claim that he'd laid Stanley Baldwin. Dinsdale was a gentleman. What's more, he knew how to treat a female impersonator. <laughs> he was a perfectly normal man, except for the 800-yard long hedgehog, but he knew how to treat a female impersonator. <laughs> Again, it's a terrible thing to talk about why comedy is funny, but it's funny when men dress up as women because the way women dress is, is important in ways that the way men dress isn't. That is just the truth. You know you're living in a decadent society when the way men dress becomes as important the way women dress. When men wear ties and the suits and they basically change their tie and that's about it. But women, you know, you know what it means if I say to you, oh, she was dressed in a very feminine way. You know what that means. You know what it means if I say she was dressed modestly or if I say she was dressed in a wild and wacky. But, you know, you know what these things mean. And one of the things this is in um, uh, Thomas Mann's famous book, The Magic Mountain. And it's just a great observation that he observes the fact that women's actual bodies are part of their dress. I mean, women bear parts of their bodies, their arms, you know, their back and things like this. They, they bear parts because they are beautiful in and of themselves. So the way women dress speaks about women's roles in society, women's roles in the sexual game that we all are here to play, and women's roles in the sexual dance, I should call it, we're all here to play. And when men take that on, it's inherently funny. It's inherently funny. And now we are living in these comedy routines. It is just amazing to me. It is just amazing to me that comedy has become reality in America because we are living in the big grift. Now, if you're like me, one of your favorite things to do is go to the post office, wait online with people coughing all over you and uh, get a stamp or something. Uh, If you're a sane human being, you want to go and use stamps.com. Stamps.com brings you all the services of the post office in your computer where they belong. Stamps.com has saved businesses thousands of hours and tons of money. You get the services of the post office and UPS all in one place, plus big discounts on mailing and shipping rates. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS right into your home. Anything you can do in the post office except wait online, you can do it. Stamps.com. So stop wasting time going to the post office. Go to Stamps.com. Instead, there's no risk. And with my promo code, Claven, Claven, try and remember that, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale, no long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Clavin. That's stamps.com, promo code Clavin. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. I say it slowly because you otherwise you will not know how to spell it, sound it out. It is K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no E's in Clavin. I just make it look this easy. So this is one of the best ideas The Daily Wire has ever had. It's true. There are so many narratives around hot topic issues. It's hard to keep track of all the newest controversies the left decides to be offended by. They get crazier every single day. They tell you a man is a woman. They tell you everybody's a racist. They tell you America, the freest country on earth, is a racist country. It's nuts. So get ready for The Daily Wire's newest show, soon to be released, called Debunked. 
In this show, Ben exposes leftist fallacies in 15 minutes or less, so he'll be speaking a little slower than usual. Climate change, universal health care, COVID policies versus facts and logic. The show will be available exclusively to Daily Wire members. So if you aren't already a member, go to dailywire.com slash subscribe and use code debunked to get 25% off. You don't want to miss this. Ben is so good at doing this and it needs to be done. So use code debunked for 25% off today. So as you know, I like to interrupt the show every now and again to bring on somebody uh, articulate and intelligent and break things up a little bit. Uh, We couldn't find anybody this week. Uh, I was going to (laughs) just interview a a house plant, but he was in the White House. And so I brought on my son, Spencer Clavin, no relation, who actually is probably the most brilliant person I know. He is the host of the Young Heretics podcast. If you are not listening to the Young Heretics podcast, you are missing the Ivy League education you missed the first time. You could be getting it this time. But you're missing. He's also the associate editor of my single favorite review, the Claremont Review of Books. It is the one uh, review that I read from cover to cover every time it comes out. He's also on the American Mind, which is kind of the young person's uh, Claremont Review. And uh, we've never met, but I thought it would be. <laughs> well, th- I want to thank you for respecting my preferred pronouns, which are no flash relation. <laughs> exactly. I, everybody's been very kind. You know, I, I request it now at any at any event that I go it's to. It's very important. And, and of course, you do. we do have a contract that I have to say that. Right. <laughs> I wouldn't come on the show otherwise. Uh, right. Exactly. <laughs> so one of, one of the reasons... I wanted to talk to you, a specific reason, Mm. because the cancel culture thing has me uh, a little crazy, especially as the right keeps saying, oh, it's private business. They can do anything they want. Not not really understanding the situation. You have this this podcast, The Young Heretics, and it's exploding and you have a a growing uh, Twitter following. But you... I mean, you are actually starting to out strategize them and starting to put (laughs) together a strategy to keep yourself uncanceled. So you, you recently joined Dave Rubin's uh, site. So tell, tell me about that a little That's bit. That's right. Yeah. Well, this is, it's like all we can do to keep one step ahead of these <laughs> like cretins, these like dumb Twitter, whatever. Yeah. And you know, after uh, what happened on January 6th, the, the, there was this big crackdown. People started draining followers. And you know, I, I hate this thing that where you like yeah. you build up with sweat and tears, you build up this connection with people, you build this community. And then suddenly it's just like drained away from you because what? Because some like egghead thinks that you're not like a nice guy or something. Right, you know? right. That's literally what it is, you know. And so we started thinking about ways to um, get around this. And uh, Dave's platform, Dave Rubin's platform, uh, Locals, is what we ended up on. Because it's, uh, first of all, I know Dave. I yeah. know he's a great guy. Great and guy. I know he's committed to free speech. So you, you, you sort of have a certain uh, a promissory note there. You have a promise there that you're not going to get kicked off for something you say. And you're very much in control of the, of the content. Plus, one of the encouraging things about Young Heretics, which is a show about the, the West and the great principles of the West, which are now constantly under assault, right? Um, one of the really amazing things about it that's been so exciting is that people are responding in a very personal way to it. It's not just like, mm. oh, this is this fusty academic subject. It's like, okay, so here's Aristotle, some dude from 200, 2,300 years ago, right? Um, and, and he actually has something to say about like how to be good at being you, right? Yeah. It's yeah. And now, and, and people are, are connecting with that. And I, Locals is a place where we basically just, you know, it's like undercover of darkness <laughs> in this, in this yeah. community. Uh, uh, people can can talk to one another and actually like re but, but just what you were saying this right. is uh, this is one of the reasons a the show is is great but also knowing it's it's great for people to know the past a little bit right. because you know what 
which part of what we're seeing is just human nature and has happened a million times before, right. which part is new and has to be dealt with in a new way. Right. And that's why I think so, we've, we've got so many people who are so ignorant in this country mm. that they think things have never happened before that have, and they think things have happened before that haven't. So you did a piece on locals, that, which is a subscription, right. which I thought was great. And I talked about it a little bit on the backstage show. But you know, it, I, I hadn't thought of it, and it, it's just it's so amazingly accurate. And mm. so uh, it's such a precise comparison. Well, you talked about the fact that the declaration of the Catholic Inquisition right. and the declaration of Twitter's terms of services service have so much in common. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's wild, right? Well, so you, you, you remember the Inquisition. Uh, I was there. there. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I escaped with my life. It's, yeah. it's remarkable. Yeah, if you look in some of those paintings, you can see just in the corner a little bald head, like, fleeing. <laughs> and there's a sort of cloud of dust behind you. Um, yeah, no, this, this is what I've been thinking about, because obviously this stuff vexes me greatly. Right. Um, and I've been pondering over it and pondering over it. And um, it did occur to me, you know, that this stuff, uh, history never repeats. It always rhymes. Right. But there are these things that come back up again and again. And and I was, you know, thinking about when I did it on the show, an episode about John Milton, who was very pro, you know, freedom right. of expression. Um, you know, what, what are we actually going through here? Like, what can we expect and what can we learn from, from the past? Um, and I was thinking about the Inquisition because Pope, you know, this is, this is what, 1515 now, uh, Pope Leo X puts out this, uh, you know, this message, this papal bull called, um, it's it, it called like among our concerns. So among, among the concerns that we have about the state of, of Europe are, um, the printing press exists, right? Around 1440, Gutenberg invents the printing press. It's this complete revolution in communications technology. Right. Now, suddenly, you get things like newspapers. Like, whoa, imagine that, that you can just sort of distribute text to people and ideas to people. And this was right. very exciting. Um, and in, in, in this message that, that Leo puts out, he says, well, you know, we're, this is a great boon. This is wonderful that this technology exists. It enables Christian learning to be spread across. But also, some people are using it to say bad things. Some people, like, you know, are using it to, I don't know, post uh, 95 theses on the wall. Of the, I mean, you know, the, the Lutheran doctrine, right? The, yeah. the Reformation and Protestantism was one of the things he was very concerned about, about spreading. And so with what, I, what seems to me, you know, the sincerest goodwill in the world, he, he says, and so the obvious conclusion here is that we, Rome, have to decide what people can and can't say. I'm not here to knock on the Catholic Church. It's really one of the great institutions yeah. of the West, right? And one of the tragedies of the Inquisition is that it just, it really did a number on the credibility of the Catholic Church, you know, un yeah. in some ways unfairly. But I am here to compare that. If you go to Twitter's civic action page, right, uh, you will find Jack Dorsey or whoever is in charge of writing these little corporate statements on, like, why we have to kick all the conservatives out of the world, right? Um, you will hear them say, well, you know, one of the great things about our platform, this new technology, isn't it so exciting that we can, every year is an election year, it's a global platform, we can communicate to one another in real time, but some people are using this technology, right? This is the same reaction, this is the same response of people who hold power, right? That, that, oh, like some people are using this new technology to say bad things. And so it's our job to decide what the bad things are and stop them, Twitter says, before they happen, right? And this, was the, this is the classic thing that Milton was so upset about was that they weren't just going in and like, you know, canceling books that had already been published, um, but they were also just stopping people from publishing books 
really at all. And that's, yeah. you know, and that's, by the way, that's not the Catholic Church. That's the Puritans, right? So this is a, a, a general reaction to this sense that there's like a new availability. People cannot stand the idea that there's new ideas out there and some of them you might not like. But, right? the, but the interesting thing about that, what yeah. you just said, is that the Catholic Church in this situation was the old guard. Right. And what it did not get, and the reason it made this, what was a mistake, was it didn't get that the times they were changing and there was no defense against the printing press. They didn't understand that. So that means, though, that things that we think of as, as modern as, as it's possible to be, Twitter and Facebook, and these are things that happened moments ago, essentially. Right. But you're saying in this comparison that they represent, in some sense, the old guard, that they're defending something old. That's right. I mean, they've now aligned themselves with all of these power structures in America that are built up around like TV, around just having this, you know, control over your image, right? Going on TV and doing these debates and, and having this kind of very packaged um, presentation of things that now obtains in Washington, right? This sort of sense of, of uh, polished. Uh, you've been talking to me about how like everything's a grift. Yeah, right? <laughs> that's this, my whole show today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is part of it that like, you know, TV makes it possible to grift. Like right. you can that's kind right. of pretend. And, and just like the printing press, which was not just like this new technology, but just a whole new way of life and organizing things, right? Digital media just pulls the veil off of that. We see all mm. of these backstage, you know, like you suddenly see officials putting masks on backstage, walking on stage and taking masks off. You see the open hypocrisy of this because they can't control mm. what, what you can see. And all of these little movements that are rising up, what happened in Hong Kong in 2019, what happened in America in 2016, right? When, when these kind of like meme lords were helping Trump to get elected, right? Like this is, it, not all of it is good, not all of it is bad, but you can't control it. This is the thing, right? Leo did a a fair bit of damage. Universities started started printing lists of books you can't uh, you can't read. Um, Amazon is now doing the same thing essentially by just vanishing books off of its servers. Yeah. Like um, you know when when Harry became Sally is now just like not there. Um, this stuff you know this, these reactions. It's not like they can't do a lot of damage. It's just that the the sea change that they're reacting to is so much bigger than them. And yeah. and and eventually one way or another you're going to get these renegade movements of people who are using this technology to go around in all these different ways. Well, that's this is the thing that I think worries so many people. I mean, you're obvi you're obviously right that you have John F. Kennedy banging everything that moves <laughs> in a skirt in the in the White House, and right. we never you know we never knew a, th a thing about it. Right. And then you know you have now. Uh, all the guy has to do, a uh, politician has to do, is whistle at a girl, and he, he, his career can be ended. Right. But when they found out that it was going to be that way, if the accusation was against a Democrat, it just vanished. Right. It just they just suppressed it. So it, it worries me. It worries me that this technology. I mean, the the church did a fair bit of damage. Right. Uh, of you know, keep yeah. suppressing this stuff. It worries me that this technology may be so big and so uh, unified in some way. That, I mean, for instance, you were talking about Hong Kong. Hong Kong is now suppressed. Right. They have they have won. They have basically destroyed. Every objector has been arrested. Every protester is gone. The radio shows that attack them are off the air. They did it, and it happened like that, and it was over. Right. What's to keep that from happening here? Well, this is a great example of the kind of thing you can learn from studying history. Right? Okay. You, like you, yeah. you, you get these comparisons, and they're not quite exact because the printing press was was everywhere, and now we have these this old guard that just holds so much control. It's as if like the Pope and a few other guys in the universities owned like 
all the printing presses and there were only five. Right. And so, the, and, and so the, the comparison here is with servers, right? This is what the right hasn't been thinking about. And I'm excited to see that people are starting to think about it. So remember when Parler got like yeah. zapped? Yeah. Um, that was because they didn't have their own servers. And I, my friend, uh, James Poulos at the American Mind, yeah, who, who right. thinks about this stuff all the time, he's, he's fond of saying, you know, the, the cloud is just somebody else's computer, right? All you're doing is you're downloading onto some other space. We don't have control. We keep making these new apps, right? And But then we saw with, with Parler that if they don't like the app, they can just cancel the app. And this is the big fight for conservatives right now. It's like building our own infrastructure, finding mm, right, right, right. ways, right? You know, Urbit is a good example in the, you know, in the OS department, the operating system department. Um, and, and I think that conservatives need to get like really uh, proactive about just finding ways to kind of get around that centralization. So, so assuming we do this, yeah, and assuming that they that you're right, they are the old guard, and of course, it's always it's as old as Pharaoh that they are going to like take, uh, you know, collect the grain and distribute right. it as they will, and and then a generation later, you're slave. You know, that, that's as old as the Bible. <laughs> you know, you know. So they, they they are they there only is one new idea in politics, which is that individuals should be free, you right, know, right. and they should have make their own choices and spend their own money. But that means that the right has got to have, one of, the, one of the things about the right is it has played defense almost all the time. And the mm. reason it plays defense is kind of built into the system that we're always trying to conserve what's there and it's always under attack. But what we were trying to conserve is pretty much gone. Mm. I mean, I think that the uh, Bill of Rights, when you have, when you have uh, you know, Amazon and Google and Twitter uh, shutting people down and David French, a champion, once a champion right. of rights, is saying, well, they're private entities, you know, they got, that's the way it goes. <laughs> you know, the, the, the old uh, thing that we were trying to conserve is gone. What does the new right look like? And this is one of the, mm. one of the th things that I have a problem with is being from the old, like, I, you know, from the old 1776 right, uh -huh. that, that too many young people don't, have not really formulated their ideas about this. So what are you seeing? Well, there's got to be at least a discussion going on. Yeah, there's something so dynamic going on, okay. and it gets obscured because of all the screaming and the screeching, <laughs> right? Like, these people are Nazis. They're, I mean, of course, like, you want to avoid like crazy conspiracy theories you want to like disavow nazism all of right. these things right um but so much of this is noise is, is is sort of like mainstream press noise um and there is something a really important debate going on i'm, I'm glad you i was going to mention that you're you're kind of back and forth with david french about well look like these are private entities right but that doesn't mean they have the power to strip us of our god-given rights right <laughs> like and and what i see when when i see a conversation like that is I see an idea that makes sense in a certain context that has been just turned into our only idea. This right, idea right, right, of yeah. private enterprise yeah. right, is now the only principle according to which we operate. Right. And you are actually being like a little bit more like the young right when you're, <laughs> when you're pointing to ideas that are behind those ideas, right? Principles that are actually deeper than and always were meant to precede the American regime, right? Right. Right. right? We, we are endowed by our creator with certain inevitable rights. That's like, a, that's a kind of tacit agreement from, there's, there's just like questions that are already answered in that, which are, for example, that, you know, these rights are not the, the fruit of, of government. You don't like get them because government says so. Government protects them and, and it's, right. it's their job to protect you against new things like Amazon coming up. This is something we've never faced a threat like this before. When has it ever been the case that if the president, the sitting president of the United States wanted to get his message out to the American people in the most sort of immediate and current mode of communication, there existed one guy or like three guys that could be like, 
No. That's right. No. That's right. right. You know, when has that ever existed? When, no, yeah. Never. And so, so you're saying, like, that's a threat to something deeper than liberalism, right? And, and people like David French get very antsy because there's a lot of that energy on the young right right now. And a lot of it is just kind of, like, angry and, at, and like, be, rightly so. Because yeah, yeah. we've been so, you know, suppressed. And, the, 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 you know, this, this kind of dissident right is sometimes what you call it. You get a lot of, like, you know, gym bros on Twitter and everything. Um, but what they're basically, you know, all saying is there are certain things that are non-negotiable, like right. that men aren't women, right? Or, like, that we don't want our children to, in public places, be confronted with this, like, totally dehumanizing ideology of gender and that they can just, you know, mutilate their bodies, all this terrible stuff. These are kind of, like, very basic, they're even almost primal concerns that the new right has. Now, in, in that, they've basically just said, like, liberalism sucks. Like, all of this individual liberalism. Even classical liberalism. Exactly. Yeah. Even, like, John Stuart Mill. And right, like, right. All, all of this, you know... Um, individual liberty. That was, that was a terrible mistake because uh-huh. <laughs> look where it got us. Right. right. Um, and, and my feeling is that there's, there's a really important, you know, the new right is now, the young right is now like having this conversation about how to take Trumpism forward, right? Like what, Trump did this thing. He basically was the voice of that, that right. cry, right? Like we, we, we will not allow these like final bedrock principles to be taken away. Um, now we have to decide how to do that in a, like a civilized and vo- politically viable way. Um, and so I think there has to be some meeting where you inject that energy, that sort of new vitalism that is part of the, the young right into the American systems that we all know and love. It can yeah. be done. It's happening everywhere. This is the other thing about digital technology. It's happening like on Clubhouse. Do you know about Clubhouse? Yeah, I do. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so like all of these sort of, you know, platforms that the New York Times is saying, well, unfettered. Unfettered, unfettered conversations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is like, what's the opposite of an unfettered conversation? <laughs> Taylor Lawrence of the New York Times. Like, it's a conversation in fetters. Like, that's an admission that you want Americans of course, of course. in fetters. Yeah. And so, like, which is a chain. You know, like, you want, you want them tied down. Anyway, I, like, I, I digress a little bit, but only to say that, like, that conversation that I just described, like, how do we recover these deep, old human well, let me Let me ask you this, because yeah, yeah. uh, before we run out of time, yeah, I've got to yeah. ask you this last question. I, I had Douglas Murray on the show, and I'm really fond of Douglas, and I really admire him, and uh, he's very, very bright guy. Right. And he, he has put forward this idea of Christian atheism, that in other words, because one of the things when I said we are endowed with, uh, by our creator with rights, a lot of people on Twitter, and there were a lot of them, said, yeah. oh, there's no creator, how can we, you know? Yeah. And I thought, well, then you're in a different country <laughs> than you thought you were in, right? Yeah. And, and Douglas says this Christian atheism, we should retain the values of Christianity, but I, I myself, I, Douglas Murray, cannot believe, you know. That, that seems to me like looking at footprints in the snow and saying nobody walked there, you know. Yeah, yeah. So what is the answer to that? I mean, have we, do you agree? Well, you don't. I know you're a devout Christian. Right, so right. Do, do you agree, though, that, that Douglas has a point that it has become more difficult to believe uh, in some sense? Yeah. Well, you know, you and I both admire Douglas yeah. tremendously. Yeah. And, you know, my, I, I have taken this point up in print, right? Like the Tom Holland is another person yeah. who's, you know, this, this wonderful book, Dominion, about the history of Christianity yeah. kind of ends by gesturing toward this idea that maybe these, these values can survive even if we don't, if we can't believe in God anymore. Um, I don't think that works, right? Like, I don't think that we can, we can move forward. But I do think that when somebody of Douglas Murray's intellectual caliber and honesty mm. is saying in the truest sincerity of his heart that these ideas don't look plausible to me. I can't bite the bullet on them. Um, that's a genuine crisis because without them, as you say, we can't 
survive. And, and we, can't, we can't browbeat people about that. Like, there's, you're not going to get anywhere by saying, like, right, what right, the right. You know, um, what, instead, I think what we need to do is boldly and rightly make the case that the resistance to Christianity is outdated. That this, the idea that God that's, has that's been disproven, right? Yeah. That's an old idea. Science is actually, like, f first of all, it was never, science never suggested that that was the case. It only bracketed God, right? Francis Bacon says, I'm going to leave certain things that are bounded by religion outside. And, and you know, Newton is a, some form right. of Christian and, and Kepler is a Christian. Yeah, right? they were all Christian. They do this in service to God. But then we forget, like, just like liberalism forgets that you have to answer the basic questions yeah. first, right? Right. Science and, and modernity forgets where they came from. Where they came from. And the, yeah. All right, we got to stop there. Spencer Clavin, my son, no relation, uh, is the host of The Young Heretics. You should be listening to The Young Heretics. You really should. And you should also be reading the Claremont Review of Books in the American Mind, where he's an associate editor. Claremont Review, just a great, great journal and The American Mind, a lot of uh, energy and in interesting new ideas coming up. Good to see you. Yeah, you too. It's <laughs> like get a drink or something while you're in town. <laughs> And now, yes, it's here. You waited for it, I know, all week long, and it has finally arrived. The mailbag. Why, 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 you're getting nervous, man. Yeah. <laughs> all right. I, I have nothing to say about that. I don't even understand it, but it just makes me. Uh, from Anonymous. Uh, hello, Sir Clavin. First of all, I could go on and on about how great I think you are, but I will get straight to my question. What? Uh, all right. If that's the way you want to be. Uh, do you think that someone who has had an abortion when they were young, wasn't raised with any religion and basically was told that having a baby young would ruin her life, can later in life find God and somehow redeem herself for that terrible sin? Or does that choice forever banish her from having a relationship with God or a religious community? I really respect and appreciate the amount of honesty that goes into your answers and would love to know your thoughts on this. Thank you for all you do. Well, this is one of the few uh, the theological questions that I feel I can actually answer with. With authority. And the answer is simply this. God's forgiveness is vastly bigger than your sin. God's forgiveness is vastly bigger than your sin. And yes, absolutely, a contrite heart is what God asks for. He asks for a contrite heart because he knows how broken we all are. He knows that even those of us who manage not to do something bad are thinking those bad things. He knows exactly who we are. And in this question of abortion, which is very much like the question of slavery. It is a very, very deep wrong that has become embedded in society so that it is very easy, especially for a young person, to not fully understand the moral import of what she is doing when she has an abortion. There's a book called The Giver, and they made it into a movie that actually has the scene in it. And one of the reveals in this story is that babies are being killed. And when the, the, the hero finds out about this, his, his advisor says he doesn't know what he's doing. He, the person killing the baby does not understand what he's doing. And I truly, truly believe in this society where we have talked ourselves into a materialist point of view, where we have framed this in a... a, a uh, a frame of rights which makes no sense whatsoever. The baby is the smallest person in the room. The baby has the rights. But it is hard for people to morally grasp the thing they are doing, which is hard from the very beginning because you don't see the baby. I mean, one of the things that is working in the favor of morality here is people can now see in the womb and see what's happening. But a person who has done this thing may very well have done it without the full consent of their heart because they did it without the full knowledge of their heart. 
And so God knows that too, and he knows if you are contrite, he knows if you are sorry, he knows if you regret it, and his forgiveness is bigger than your sin. Christ on the cross, an act of killing God, said, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. I think he would say that to anyone who came to him in this uh, situation, forgive her, she knew not what she was doing. It's just something that people, that they have created this atmosphere uh, where you don't understand the full morality of it. This is why this is why I often talk about George Washington and slavery. George Washington, a hero of liberty, a, a man who uh, instantiated liberty, who gave it a, a home and a dwelling in the United States of America by his actions, almost solely by his actions, gave the ideas of the founders a place to live, a man who understood liberty that well and was willing to sacrifice a kingdom, he was willing to literally sacrifice a kingdom in order to incarnate liberty, to give it a, a, a dwelling. He didn't understand, literally did not understand why his slaves wouldn't work as hard on his land as he did. He didn't get it. He didn't get why a well-treated slave, one of his, his wife's uh, house slaves, why that woman would escape. He didn't understand. He spent money trying to bring her back because he thought she must have been seduced by a rogue and, and you know, led astray. He couldn't understand it. It took him till the end, toward the end of his life, when finally he began to get it. He began to understand. And he had a, a, you know, a black guy who traveled around with him, who he liked and treated with respect. It took him. You, you can be wrapped so much in an atmosphere, uh, a, a morally wrong atmosphere that you do not know what you're doing. And that's the atmosphere the Democrats and the left are trying to create right now. They're trying to create it right now with this transgender stuff. They're trying to create an atmosphere in which we no longer know right from wrong, real from unreal, and therefore the government is going to have all the more power because they're going to be able to censure us because they decide what two and two equal. That's 1984. They decide what two and two equal, so they have complete control over reality. And of course, reality does bite back, but still, they can create that atmosphere. They have created that atmosphere with abortion and many, many, Many people have uh, committed abortion without fully understanding what they're doing. And God, you know, he's, God's not fooled. You know, he's not going around saying, I didn't, I didn't get it. You know, like, he gets it. He gets it. He knows where you are. He knows where you live. And he will forgive you if you go to him. His forgiveness is vastly bigger than your sin. Uh, from D, dear Clavin, destroyer of ease, teller of tomorrow's news. Firstly, I love the new format enough that it nearly makes up for me having to listen to Noel since the Clavinless weekends are unbearably long. You know, there are other things you could use heroin, you know, other things that are much less harmful, you know, like, <laughs> uh, secondly, uh, I've really appreciated your perspective on femininity. Uh, especially as presented in another kingdom in almost every explanation of femininity is good. It only shows or at least shows best in the context of family. Uh, what are the feminine virtues, irony intended, and how do they show in singleness? Your loyal listeners soon to be listening from Nigeria. Um, uh, yeah, I, I guess I see what you mean. You mean like motherhood and wifehood uh, and, and the fact that uh, women in, in building homes actually spiritualize uh, life and in, in raising babies actually spiritualize life and actually uh, following feminine virtues, which I don't put in quotations, in following feminine virtues, they create an important uh, counter moral narrative to the moral uh, um, 
standards of men. You know, the standards of men are all ambition, all money, all success, all competition. And women basically, or did, you know, femininity, I should say, femininity creates another set of standards to which men become responsible. Men become responsible to that set of standards when they have a a wife and when the wife has children. But the things that create the, the Things in women's nature that create that standards are not don't have to be in a family situation at all. The generosity, uh, the tenderness, the uh, putting aside of of self, which women do in a way that men never literally never do. Uh, You know, I think that those are things. Look, anybody can be generous and anybody can be tender and anybody can uh, be selfless, but not everybody can do it as a woman. And these are things that make people womanly. And it is things that are much more important than other traits that we think of as womanly. And I think that, um, you know, I I respect this a lot and and, uh, defend it, even though I know it has it's cost me a lot because people are really afraid to talk about this stuff. But, you know, I I didn't have the the greatest uh, relationship with my mother. She was a nice person, but she was very, very cut off, very frozen in herself and had a very hard time relating and giving uh, the mothering that uh, that young people need. And all my adult life, basically, women in some sense have taken care of me. All my life, they have women have taken care of me, and I don't know if I just radiate uh, being a motherless child, or if uh, I think it's them. And because of that, because of that, I have become a deeply respectful of them. And you know, there are guys. One of the, one of the problems with this is there are a lot of guys who who see that, who see that women are willing to take care of them, and and disdain them for it. They disdain them. They think because they're living by their male standards, they think that they that women are living by lower standards rather than by different standards. And they abuse women because they understand that some women will take that abuse. I feel that a lot of guys go in the opposite direction, the direction that I've gone, where you start to feel like, oh, I get it. You know, women are living by different standards. We have to help elevate those standards, protect those standards, and and basically incorporate those standards in our standards in order to see the world holy. Men and women are two, uh, like the lenses on, a th- on 3D glasses, and it is only after living with a woman for years that you begin, that a man begins to actually see the world three-dimensionally. And I just think these virtues are, are there, if those virtues are there in the world, even in singleness, even outside of the family, they improve everything. I have worked in uh, all female offices, uh, I have worked in all male offices, and both of them uh, go terribly bad in some ways. You know, I mean, it, it, it's not, you know, a work environment isn't a work environment, but if you had to live in a world, which is one of the things the left is trying to create, where only the male standards, the male standards, which are fairly materialist, only those apply, it is not going to be as good a world. It is going to be a much, uh, much worse world. And so femininity, I just think is one of the, you know, God's gifts to humanity and this idea that a woman is only, you know, strong if she's kick-ass or a woman is only valid if she's making as much as a man or can do anything a man can do. I think it is an utter mistake. And I know I say it all the time and I know it's why I'm not invited to certain places uh, to, to speak in certain places. It has nothing to do with individual choices. It has nothing to do with individual lives. Everybody's an individual. Everybody should make the choice that is going to serve themselves and serve the world and do what they think God made them to do. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the principle of supporting femininity in the world as it appears and it only appears in women. Only women can be feminine because it is an alignment of their inner self with their physical self. Men can be effeminate, but only women can be feminine. 
men can be manly, only, women can only be mannish. And I think that those are uh, important things to understand because it's just like if I go out and buy a cowboy hat, that's not going to make me a Texan. You know, I can wear a cowboy hat, I'm still going to be a New Yorker. That's, you know, that's the, it's the same thing. You can be effeminate, but a man can be effeminate, but he can't be feminine. Femininity is a gift to the world and it is a, uh, an important thing. And if we lose it, the world is going to be a soulless place. Uh, one more. I got to go short on the mailbag today. Um, so here's one from Aaron. If Manchin, Joe Manchin, were to switch to the Republican Party, would that automatically make McConnell the majority leader and flip all the committee leaders back to uh, the Republicans? Has there ever been a situation such as this in our country? There has. Um, and let, this is going to be tough because I have to remember names, which uh, after a while gets a little difficult to do. But in 2000, in 2000 they had the same um, in the House, it was, it was in the House, right? They had the, the same situation where the parties were divided. Was it the House? No, it, no, it wasn't. It was the Senate. I'm sorry. And Jim Jeffords declared that he was going to become, he was put off by George Bush's policies, and he declared that he was going to become an independent, but he was going to caucus with the Democrats. And Tom Daschle became the majority leader. Um, I think I got that right. Yeah, it was 2001. And that when Tom Daschle became the majority leader. And that would happen also if Joe Manchin switched sides, which would be really interesting. I'm sure they're giving him every inducement they can if they have any uh, uh, any wisdom at all. I'm sure they're giving him every inducement they can to do that. But that is exactly, exactly what would happen. And it did happen in 2001. And look it up if I've got some of my facts wrong. But I think that was basically it. All right, we're going to stop the mailbag there. A Clavenless week has come upon you, unless you're an All Access subscriber, because I will be doing All Access this week. I love doing All Access. I love talking to you, and I hope you will be there. But if you can't be there, you'll be destroyed. However, <laughs> those of you who survive, those of you who crawl, scratch, climb, desperately slog to, to next Friday, I will be back with The Andrew Claven Show, and I will still be Andrew Claven. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe, too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thanks for listening. The Andrew Claven Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Production manager, Pavel Vidowski. Edited by Danny D'Amico. Lead audio mixer, Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production coordinator, McKenna Waters. And our production assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. Democrats declare total war on reality by passing the Equality Act. Rand Paul questions the HHS nominee who supports drugging and mutilating gender-confused children. And Mr. Potato Head struggles to decide whether he is gender fluid or not. All of that and much more today on The Matt Walsh Show.